which is actually a kind of an average of a bigger range, but that is the number of friends that Dunbar says you can have and maintain at any one time. Now, he describes this level of friendship as the people you would invite if you were having a big party. You think about all the people you might invite to a big party, the, the kind of party where like you don't have to talk directly to any of these people, but you probably would interact, so you want to have some level of relationship. But then it actually expands from there in kind of a rough rule of three. As you move up to 500 people, roughly three times that many, you get to your acquaintances, people that you talk to on a semi-regular basis. This might even be like your plumber, right? That you know the name and face and you know like the bits of life story you got when he was underneath your sink or something. Those are your acquaintances. And then another rule of three out from there to 1,500 people is like the name to face category. These are the people that you are like, yeah, yeah, I recognize those eyebrows, I guess. And I think if you told me their name, I might agree with you that that is indeed their name. <laughs> All right, but then we can go the other way as well. You have that 150, you, you knock it down to 50 people, and these are close friends. These are the people, that sphere of people that you might invite over for dinner. Right? You actually care about having conversation face-to-face -face with them. But maybe they don't know a lot of your most intimate life details. But you're, you're good enough friends that you can have a nice interaction. We go down one more level to 15 people. And this is that close sphere, right? These are the people that you go to when you need sympathy. These are the people that you know you can reach out to for a helping hand. And then there's even one more sphere down to five people, which is just the most intimate, vulnerable relationships you have. Typically, this lowest level will actually include family members, spouses, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully you haven't pushed your spouse out into the 15 range yet. <laughs> but these are the kind of relationships, too, then, that, in, that with this 15 or 5 range, right, that can span very easily across city moves or job changes or other things that happen in your life. A lot of times you hear people talking about these relationships as the kind of relationship that if, even if you don't talk for a while, when you reconnect, it feels like you pick up right where you left off. You never really lose touch because of the connection that you have. These are the kind of relationships that make not easily breakable ropes. And the Bible contains both familial and non-familial examples of all of these kinds of relationships. I want to focus on kind of the more intimate ones. We have some familial relationships. You've got Moses and Aaron. With, while brothers, it, it goes beyond that. How many people here have a brother? You got a brother? How many people here would follow their brother for 40 years in a desert? Huh? That, that is a special kind of relationship that Moses and Aaron have that goes beyond just brotherhood, <laughs> right? You've got uh, Ruth and Naomi, this mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship, which follows a similar pattern of moving across countries and staying together and building each other up in the relationship. You've got Abraham and Lot as these kind of cousin relationships that go through hardship together and forge bonds. But we also have the non-familial friendships. You, th you think about David and Jonathan that have this intimate, 
connection almost instantly when they meet, and that lasts a lifetime. You've got Jesus with Peter and James and John, his inner circle of people that he shares his most vulnerable moments with. You've got Paul and Barnabas going out on missionary journeys together and sharing together. The relationships that are more than just acquaintance or follower or family. In fact, on the lines of Jonathan and David, in 1 Samuel 18, it says, after he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, who is Jonathan's dad, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And from that moment, Jonathan and David were inseparable up until Jonathan's death. It was truly a lifelong relationship. We think about Jesus amidst thousands of people following him around to get his message, had his inner circle of 12, but then even a further inner circle of three that he took up to the mount for the transfiguration and, and took into the garden of Gethsemane when he was the most vulnerable and despairant that he had ever been. And our scripture passage today, I think it encourages us to do the same, to create these relationships, to look at our own lives and identify the relationships that we have that build us up. They give us a good return for our work, which is a weird way to talk about people sometimes, right? But we know this. We, we identify with this even if we don't connect directly to it, because I, I, th I would say that all of us know of people in our lives that we would say take more of our energy than we receive back from them. And those relationships are okay. It is okay to give of ourselves to people, but that's not the relationships we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the relationships that have the give and the take, where you build into them when they need it and they give in to you when the tables are turned. And there is a good return for the work you share. And these relationships do take work. It's not easy to build these relationships. And the scripture, again, points us in that direction. Now, if you've read Ecclesiastes recently, it's not always the most uplifting book. It's, there's plenty of despair to be found in the words. And we find this passage right in the middle of that. In fact, even the words that bookend the passage for today are fairly despairing. If you back up just two verses to verse 7, it says, Next, I saw something under the sun that else that was pointless. It's very uplifting, right? <laughs> he says, There are people who are utterly alone, with no companions, not even a child or a sibling, yet they work hard without end, never satisfied with their wealth. So for whom, I, for whom am I working so hard and depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is pointless and a terrible obsession. People who spend their lives not building relationships, but instead working harder and harder to amass more and more are never satisfied. It's as if the author opened a window into today from thousands of years ago and is speaking directly to us. 
I think we all know those people. Maybe you are one of those people who spends their life working and working and working and ends up with it being pointless. And I would argue that this doesn't just apply to people who are physically alone. There are people who are surrounded by families and spouses and friends who are still the embodiment of this passage, alone in a crowd, out for number one. The author of Ecclesiastes calls these people out, calling it a pointless and terrible obsession. And then there's a moment of clarity for the author. The tone changes, and he writes these simple words, two are better than one. And I'm guessing if you've heard this, this scripture passage read in a church before, it was probably at a wedding. This is a very common wedding scripture, and it does apply to spouses. Two are better than one in spouses as well, but it's not just talking to them. It's about the start of a community. I love the message version of this at the end, which is why I had both of them read, because I love this idea of, can you round up a third? Can you find other people to build this community together and be in relationship with to get an even bigger return on your work as relational people? Can you find people to be in community with instead of toiling to increase wealth? Can you spend your energy instead building relationships? And this rings true even more today. Back in 2012, there was a news story that spread across news stations and the internet of a palliative care nurse that recorded the biggest regrets of her dying patients kind of kept a memoir of sorts of all of these regrets that she heard. And the top, and two of the top five regrets that she heard from all of her patients were working too hard and not keeping in touch with friends. People on their deathbeds thinking about what they wish they would have done more of, and they were not saying, I wish I would have worked more hours. <laughs> Ecclesiastes author's words carry through time remind us of the importance of maintaining those lifelong relationships. And the science is also slowly starting to prove this correct. In 2010, there was an analysis of 148 different research studies, a meta-analysis where they bring all the results together. And they found that people with stronger social relationships had a 50% increased likelihood of survival over those that didn't. 50%. They defined social relationships as friends and family members, but they also included being involved in large communities like churches. They said that when you are in a group of people that their purpose is to build each other up and give good lifestyle advice and hold each other accountable to being better, it improved their survivability. They're literally, they, are, they die less. And science is also catching up then to prove what we have known all along from God, and that is we are better in community. We as people are built as communal 
creatures. People with close friends are shown to have better immune systems, better anti-inflammatory responses, lower stress, improved self-confidence, and longer life. Now, if you don't want those things, by all means, go it alone. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. (laughs) But this also begs a question for me. If you're going to hear all of these things, then I would think that you, like me, will have these same questions. Okay, well, how do I get these relationships if I don't have them? Or maybe how do I strengthen the relationships that I do have to make sure that they last and become these forever relationships? And those are great questions. Typically, when I find great questions like that, my first response is to go see what Jesus had to say about it. And so I did. And I think that he has some really good advice for us on this front. Consider the story of the Good Samaritan. In that story, it it comes to a point where a man asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Trying to figure out how love your neighbor fits into all of this. Well, who is that person that I have to love? And Jesus responds with a story about a man who was walking down a road and gets attacked by robbers. They strip him of his belongings and clothing and leave him beaten on the side of the road. And people pass by and say, I don't want to get involved with that. And they pass on the other side of the road. And then a Samaritan comes. And the Samaritan bandages him up, takes care of the man. Excuse me. A Samaritan being the lowest of the low, according to the man who's asking the question. And so Jesus goes on and says, okay, so who was a neighbor to the man? And the man responds, the one who had mercy on him. He doesn't say the Samaritan, that would have been too much, but he does recognize who it was. But think about that question and response, because the question the man asked was, who is my neighbor? And the response for Jesus is, who was a neighbor to the man? Go and do likewise. Neighbor is not a noun for Jesus, it is a verb. It is something you do to other people are a neighbor to them. And I would say that the same thing is true for us this morning. If your question is, how do I find good friends? The answer is, who are you being a good friend to? Where are you building relationships? Instead of saying, well, they never call me, call them. (laughs) Instead of saying, we never get to see each other anymore, make a date to do so. Can you find a third? <laughs> Are you, can you be the one to reach out and include another in the community that you are forming? And maybe the answer to that is no, you can't. Maybe today is the day that you need help, that you need to be built into because it's not, you don't have it in you right now to build into others, and that's okay. We all have seasons in life that happens. But I do want to encourage you too, even in those moments, to reach out. To humble yourself and ask for the help that you need from the community that you've built. Reach out to the friends you do have. And maybe even sometimes reach out to the friends you don't have yet. I talked to my wife about this sermon and was wrestling with the landing, if you will. Where do we, where do we end? 
and she told me a story of how she came to begin one of her best friendships that she has. And it was a woman that she didn't think would actually become one of her strongest relationships, but what she noticed in her was parenting advice to be had that she needed. <laughs> she saw the way the mother handled her five children and two foster children. Yeah. <laughs> and said, I want to be able to do that with my one six-year-old. <laughs> and so she reached out, and they grabbed coffee. She got that advice, and now they are incredible friends together, sharing their own parenting advice and life and everything together. Sometimes the friendship is as simple as that one first call to say, let's do something. Can I have some advice? Can we work together on this? And I encourage you this morning to keep moving forward in those relationships. Continue to build into people and allow yourself to be built into. Share the love of Christ with each other. For two have a good return for their hard work. And a three-ply cord is not easily snapped.